Hi folks, this is Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we all can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, December 18th, 2012. This is episode 1043 of the Survival Podcast. Today we have, um, well, we have a somewhat fitting guest. It just happened this way. Certainly I'm sure he nor I wanted it to because the interview was done before the tragic events on Friday. But we're going to have an interview today with a gentleman named Rory Miller, who is an author of many books, including uh, books such as uh, Meditations on Violence and Violence, a Writer's Guide, uh, this is a guy that has been through, well, he's been to hell and back in, in a way. He's been a corrections officer. He served overseas. Um, he's witnessed violence at every level. And he does training on how to combat violence. And I'm going to kind of warn you in advance today that this may not be for little kids to hear. And you're going to have to understand something about what Rory's talking about. At certain points, you may sound like he's talking about becoming the predator or acting like the predator, what he's trying to do is help you understand the predator so you can combat them. He's not advocating anything uh, that would be illegal or immoral. But we also have to understand that there are people that will do that and that sometimes the way to combat them um, is something that becomes very uncomfortable for us to think about. And if you ever find yourself dealing with a person like this, then that might be what you need to do. It's also going to be a two-parter because I'm going to do a follow-up on yesterday. I did a YouTube video. Most people really liked it, I think. A few people wanted to turn it into a whole discussion on the Second Amendment, and I've not allowed that on the YouTube. I've allowed it on the blog. I will not allow it on the YouTube video from either side of the discussion. Um, what I was trying to put out yesterday is what we can do now without a lot of the legislature and a lot of arguing about politics, things that make sense, and how we can save lives now and how it can be done at the individual school district level and how parents can get involved to get it done. There's some good what-if questions brought up. I'm going to answer those. I'm going to tell you why what I suggested is probably not only a great idea, but something that needs to be done. And I want to be clear that what I suggested wasn't, instead of this one plan, uh, which is hide and wait to be killed, we should have this one plan, which is run away. To, to be able to defend ourselves in these types of mass shootings and other scenarios, terrorist attacks, things like that, we have to have plans in place in any area of high density that have multiple contingencies, especially in a structured environment like a school. I'll get more into that as soon as I take care of our sponsors during the housekeeping section today. Uh, sponsor of the day number one is JM Bullion. Hey, you know what? When we had to make a change on the sponsor that we have for gold and silver, I wanted to bring in somebody that would be a family-owned business. You could talk to the owner, but I also wanted them to be price competitive, and that's kind of hard to find. With JM Bullion, I found a company that beats out even the big uh, silver and gold houses like Apmex and Monex with better pricing, which is just, I, I don't even know how they do it, but yeah, you can still make a phone call and talk to the owner if you want to. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. And remember, silver and gold should definitely be part of your financial plan in an uncertain future. Next up today, backyard food production. You know, I'll tell you what. People always talk about being prepared by storing food. That's a great idea. I think we should all do it. But, you know, what we talk about here is more about living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. A lot of the stuff that even I store for long-term use is what we would call emergency food. 
There's some things that store so well for so long that it just doesn't, and they're so inexpensive and they'll keep you alive and it just doesn't make sense not to, to store them. Like pasta, like beans, like rice, uh, like flour. I mean, those things store almost infinitely stored properly and they're dirt cheap, but I don't eat them every day. So they're a, a portion of a long-term contingency. But when it comes to being healthy, I want to eat vegetables. I want to eat fruits and I want to eat meat. That's my primary diet makeup today. It probably should be yours too. And one way that we can accentuate that is by growing and producing as much of it as we can in our own backyards. In other words, turn your backyard into a food production machine. If you get the DVD, Growing Your Groceries, by Marjorie Wildcraft at BackyardFoodProduction.com, that's what you'll learn how to do. Turn your backyard into a food production machine. Again, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Remember, the best way to visit JM Bullion, Backyard Food Production, and any of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banner in the right-hand margin. And uh, once you do that, you know you're dealing with an actual survival, survival podcast sponsor that it carries my individual endorsement. Next, remember to check out tspgear.com and tspcopper.com for some really cool stuff, especially tspgear.com. And we got the new Every Citizen of Sentinel t-shirts. You know, that goes right in with what I'm going to talk about in the first part of today's show. You know, taking care of each other, looking after each other, uh, being a Sentinel. Uh, next up today, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you support the show and the work I do at about 18.3 cents an episode. But you get a return of your investment. And you do that because I get you discounts from over 30 different vendors that help you with all walks of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Everything from gardening to guns and gear and everything in between. Check it out today. Uh, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members or click on the Member Support Brigade banner at the top of the center column for more information on that. Okay, with that wrapped up, I do want to talk for a bit about some legitimate concerns that were brought up yesterday about the, the little piece that I did at the front of the show about the shootings in Connecticut, about the need to get our children out instead of sit and wait. What I may not have been clear about, because I was so upset that the only plan was lock the door, turn off the light, and stay in place, is I'm not saying that that's never the right decision. I said in the video... It's all situationally dependent, and it has to be a decision made by the people that are de they're dealing with it. For some people, I guess that's not clear enough, so I'm restating it today. But I want to give you a few things. The biggest what if, what if there's another shooter outside, and the children are pushed outside, and then that shooter opens. Okay, In that scenario... Well, you've got a coordinated attack. You're moving to another level of sophistication with the attack. And that means that it's probably more, not less important to get the children out of school. If shots are coming from somewhere, run away from there. People say, well, you know, isn't it chaos or whatever? Well, first of all, on some levels, at least what looks like chaos is probably better to keep people alive because shooters prefer stationary, non-moving targets at close distances. Not rapidly running, moving, twitching, turning, diving uh, targets. So getting kids to run away. Number two, these smaller kids. Man, it was so much harder. Yes, it's so much harder when someone's so sick that they go after kids this young. But... Every child in a school can be taught, hey, we have 10 different places that we might have to go to if anything. You don't have to tell them what. And you all have to know these 10 places, just like you have to know your ABCs. right? I'm giving you some examples of how a plan could be laid out. The plan I didn't give you the plan yesterday, guys. It wasn't like, okay, this sucks, so do this instead. It was you got to start asking. you got to start asking tough questions. 
of your your principals, your superintendents, your school boards, and the first responders putting these plans together. If this doesn't work, what is plan B? Because they don't have plan B. Plan A, hide and wait. Plan B, die. Okay? You can't just have plan A. But let's go, let's go through that scenario. So, you've got a teacher in charge. You start putting kids out, however you can get them the hell out. If something does start to happen, you change the point. If you have that scenario, those kids staying put are probably dead anyway. Because you have, stu- you have a, a shooting team much more intent on doing long-term damage. But you don't know. A teacher has to be able to make that judgment call. It should be part of their training. We don't need a lot of money to do that. We could do this now. People said, what about students that are on the interior of the school that don't have a way to get out? They might have to use the shelter-in-place plan. Until you can determine that there's one shooter and he's on the other side of the building, I'll get to how you could possibly do that. And then you make a judgment call to get out, or maybe you make a judgment call to stay. But if you get all of, all the students out of one area, and you end up in some sort of a tactical situation, tactical entry, where the guy doesn't just blow his brains out, what the what the tactical responders want is as few innocent people in a way as possible. You can get them half out, you get half out. What about students on the second floor or third floor in a multi-story school? Same thing. If they can't get out, they can't get out. But the ones that can get out, if there looks like an opportunity to do so, get out. The one that people kept bringing up, though, with this scenario was Jonesboro, Arkansas. One guy goes in and shoots. People come out. The other guy shoots. You know what? Let me tell you something about Jonesboro, Arkansas. Those of you that remember it that way do not remember it accurately. The Jonesboro, Arkansas shootings were done totally differently. Totally differently. We need a plan for this, too, because it happened, so we know it can happen. What happened there, and it just seems like many people have had their mind erased and don't know what happened. They've made up their own version. Two people, armed up, went and set up sniper's nests. Then one calmly walked into the school, never firing a shot, pulled a fire alarm, returned to his sniper's nest, waited until all of the students and teachers were assembled the way they would in a fire drill, and then opened fire. This tells us two things. One, having an evac plan would neither have prevented nor, nor harmed that scenario. Except if you had an evac plan, you had rally points, you could have immediately been coordinating students, go here, go there, move, 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 get out. You still keep some kind of order, some kind of control into the situation, but get, instead of just running aimlessly. So actually it would have had greater order. But the bigger thing we should learn from this that ties right back into what I told you yesterday, why did they do that? Why did they do that? Because these weren't people that just went off in a rage and just killed people where they could. They actually planned it out. They were more sophisticated. And what did the more sophisticated killer want? As many targets and as densely populated as an area is stationary as possible. They set up the very thing that when we put our children in a corner and wait, we're setting up for them. Only it's worse. At least when they were outside, those kids, once they figured out what was going on, could just start running. Your odds go up if you're moving. The faster you're moving, the higher your odds go up. The more cover and concealment you have, the higher your odds go up. We should be doing everything to improve the odds of survival. Again, I'm not saying that we should have a plan that as soon as there's an attack, we immediately begin evacuation. We have to assess things. Now, how? what are some low-cost things that we can do? One of the ideas I heard, we put these super-duper you know, bulletproof doors on every freaking doorway. You know what, if we can put more secure doors, 
that will take and slow down somebody getting into the classroom, so be it. Let's do it. It will cost a lot of money. It'll take a lot of time. And the door is only as valid as the wall. So if I've got a wall that can be breached or penetrated, and I know everybody hides in a corner, and I just look at the room and I start shooting through the wall one way and the other way, I can still, you know, there's some, there's some safety there. But let's do it. But it's going to take money. It's going to take time. Okay? What's a low-cost method that we could use to improve things? What if every teacher in school had a radio, multi-channel radio? What if there was a procedure that there was a different frequency used every day on that radio that only the teachers know, which minimizes the potential for a sophisticated attack to be listening so that teachers can coordinate with each other instead of just one person on an intercom? They're here. They're there. They've gone up this way. This area is clear. You can evacuate through here. What if, what if this and what if that? You know what? There's no such thing as a what if where everything's okay. It's all about the odds of improving survival. Now, I'm going to ask a what if, and I'm cheating because I know the answer. Some of you may not believe it until you hear it proved out, but I know the answer. What if when this sick individual walked into one of those two classrooms where he murdered all those children, what if some of those children, or at least one of those children, immediately had been told by their parents, if this ever happens, you run. Even if you have to run right by the guy to get to the door because you can't get out the window, you run and you don't stop running until you know you're safe. What would have happened? Might it have saved one more life? I do have a happy story for you. The answer is yes. And the answer isn't Monday, mor Monday morning quarterbacking, as some of you said. The answer is a definitive yes. Let me read an article from you. Um, it's on emergency management, disaster zone. It's by Eric Hordman. And you have to wonder why this hasn't been on all the TV stations and radios more than all the other stuff. All the stuff that they're using to try. Why didn't, why, why isn't this being said On Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, all the stations, why is this not getting equal coverage with everything else? You'll understand what I mean when I read it to you. Yesterday I listened on CNN radio to one emotional mother talk about how her six-year-old son survived a terrible shooting tragedy in Sandy Hook Elementary School. She had always told him if someone comes into the school with a gun, he should run away. This advice probably saved her son's life. The shooter came into the classroom, standing at the door, and shot this child's teacher. The six-year-old, rather than hiding in the classroom or just staring in shock, had the presence of mind to follow his mother's advice and run for the door, running past the shooter who was still standing there. He and a couple of his buddies ran down the hall and out of the school where a good Samaritan woman picked them up and took them into the town's police station. What a horrific thing for a six-year-old to watch and now have to live with for the rest of his life. I heard another father who said that the day he was supposed to come to the school that day in the afternoon to make gingerbread houses, a little factoid that will never be forgotten. Such a senseless waste of human life and well-being for that school and all the people who now have, ha, ha, have to have survival techniques drilled into them. This is exactly what needs to happen. Tell anyone, children, teens, adults, that one key to survival technique in a shooting incident is to run away, even if it means running past the shooter. Your chances go way up doing this. I say repetition is the mother of remembering. It is not enough to give this message just once. It has to be repeated again and again. A couple months from now, repeat the message. I remember my father saying, safety first. It was drilled into him, and he drilled it into me. 
I still recommend Run, Hide, Fight Back video for adults who might be subject to workplace violence. Note the first technique is to run, which is the most appropriate for children. Hiding can work too, but fighting back on an adult is not recommended. Um, so here's your what ifs. All of you folks that say it's Monday morning quarterbacking and what if this and what if that. No, here's what if. What if children were taught run away? It's likely the more of them would be alive because it did work. It did happen. Now, on the Monday morning quarterbacking thing, let me tell you something about that term. It's completely misused today. Because it's talking about a guy that never played the game, sitting on his butt, talking to his buddies, drinking a coffee with a beer belly behind a desk at work, saying everything the team did wrong. Do you know what Monday morning quarterbacking really is? Monday morning quarterbacking is when the quarterback who just played the game on Sunday comes in on Monday with himself, the entire team, the offensive coordinator, etc., and they sit down and they watch the game tape of everything that they did, everything they did right, and everything that they did wrong. And they're honest about what they did wrong, even when it worked. Even when it worked. When they say, well, we didn't get picked off there. That interception didn't happen. But, man, that's only because that guy dropped it. That should have been picked off. We have to work on that. No one tries to be a hero in a real Monday morning quarterback session. Everybody looks for the flaws and the deficiencies. So if you want to call it Monday morning quarterbacking like that, that's what we need right now. That's what we need, an honest assessment of what worked and what didn't. You know what worked? This kid running the hell away. And people say, well, he could have got shot. Yeah, he could have. But everybody that stayed in that classroom is dead. Do you notice there's no wounded in this statistic? Do you get that? Do you understand that? There's no 20 killed, 10 wounded here. This guy knew what he was doing. He shot to kill. He picked stationary targets that were compliant and shot them and killed them all. I did, I could be wrong about that, but I haven't heard a single report with a wounded number. Running away works. I'll say the same thing I said to you yesterday. You need to talk to your school district's parents. You need to talk to your, your law enforcement officers. You need to talk to everybody. One guy said, well, I've tried to talk to the cops that kind of, you know, hang out around the school. No. You need to talk to the chief of police. You know, there's city council meetings, school board meetings. You need to bring this up. We, and it's not, we need this instead of that. You don't know what you need. I don't know what you need. Your school's different than my school. You might have a six story school. You might have different security procedures already in place. But what we do need is a freaking plan B and a freaking plan C and a freaking plan D. Not plan A, hide, plan B, die. Because that's what they have. And it's wrong. And if you think I'm angry, I am. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be as calm as I can with this. But plan A, hide, plan B, die is not good enough for our children. It's not good enough for you. It's not good enough for me. Because most people in their head... This is the other thing nobody will say. Have the same plan if it happens at a school, a shopping mall, or a sporting event. Hide, and if that doesn't work, you're dead. If it happens anywhere, first thing, get off the X and move. Get out of the line of fire as quickly as possible. If you have the ability to fight and you make the decision to fight, do so tactically. If you're not going to fight, then get out of the way so that whether it's first responders like police officers or a good Samaritan citizen that's armed is going to, he doesn't have to worry about you. 
if you can't run, if you can't get away, then you do the best you can with cover and concealment and hiding. Even then, even then, you can't just hide and wait. You have to be waiting for an, if an opportunity presents itself to get out, get out and run. What if somebody else is there? What if I'm in charge of a military unit? We come under an attack. We are overwhelmingly attacked. We cannot fight back. It's too superior of numbers. But I want to hold up and wait for help because, gee, they might have some people behind us. We have to move. We have to move or we're dead. I know that little children are not soldiers. But the reason you teach the soldier to move isn't because he's a soldier. It's because it gives him the best chance of survival, period. And I have a little bit different of a viewpoint on this maybe than some combat soldiers because I was a rear echelon soldier. I was in the airborne, but I was also a mechanic. I wasn't out there with a gun all the time every day. So I got some different training because it had to be understood that there could be a time that you could come under attack when you're not armed. And the training was move, move. Rally at specific points and move. If there's an arms room, try to get armed. If not, get away. Get out. Let the armed responders handle it because you can't because you're not armed. You can throw If you have to throw a monkey wrench, throw it, but then run. This is what we need to be teaching our teachers. I know it's wrong that teachers have to have tactical coordination skills. I know that we shouldn't live in a day and age where that's true, but it's become true. And I'm trying to keep this out of the political spectrum because I know that this event and others like it will be used, as they always are, by the people that want to take away our constitutional rights to keep and bear arms. But if you want a villain here, if you want a real villain here, you want something to blame, It's not a gun. It's probably not even a parent. All of these instances are different. From well-loving, well-cared parents to abusive parents, the parents are a variable. It's always a variable. Good to bad. Some of these students seemed well-adjusted. Some of them seemed extremely troubled. Some were troubled by other things. Some were tormented at school. The student is a variable. The shooter is a variable. The guns are variables. Many different, many different types of guns. The method of acquisition of the firearm is a variable. You know what's pretty much a constant? And we haven't heard it yet, but I'm willing to bet probably a month's revenue of my business that the answer, if they ever tell us, is going to be yes. The commonality, the commonality is psychotropic medications. Dylan Cleburne, and I don't remember the other guy in, uh, in uh, Colorado, We're on psychotropic meds. The guy that dressed up like the Joker and shot people in the theater, he was on psychotropic meds. The two kids that shot people in Jonesboro, Arkansas, I talked about, they were on psychotropic medications. The crazy guy that shot the congresswoman, he was on psychotropic medication. I can't say that all of these people that have ever done anything like this were on psychotropic medication, but I can tell you there's more than a few And more than a, more than a simple majority. Right now, about, from my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, my understanding is about 20% of Americans are on psychotropic medications. 
There's your culprit. There's your culprit. And it's something we need to do something about. And until we do something about that, we need to improve the odds of survival for ourselves and for our children. And that means being honest about what works and what doesn't work. Because some of you said that I was brutal and harsh toward the teachers and the principals. Because I said the principal did not was not a hero. I did say that, and she wasn't. A hero does something that at least has a chance of success. Some people said, well, in D-Day, a lot of men just went straight headlong into the assault and the fire. They were armed, they were trained, and they were not alone. And they knew what they were doing was going to make a difference. She made a mistake, a tactical error in judgment. But her intent was heroic. She was a heroic person that made a tactical error. You want to call it Monday morning quarterbacking? Again, yes, because there will be others like her. There will be others like her that will be in that position. And if we're not honest about it, if we say, well, that's what you should do, that's what they do. That's not what you should do. It was a mistake. People say, how do you know it didn't save anybody? Because it didn't. Because he shot her, and he went to another classroom, shot a bunch more people, and then he ran around a corner and shot himself. We know because of the reports. I I don't know what else to say about this issue. I really don't. I hope I'm clear. I hope what I'm saying makes sense to people. And I hope you understand there is no easy answer. I'm not telling you that the answer is just have an evac plan and do it. I'm saying we need more than one plan. And that is something you need to make the people that make the decisions in your school district accountable for, the people that advise them. And I want to point out Running Away Works with one final example from a very long time ago. Back in the 80s, there was a shooting at a Luby's cafeteria in Texas. A very famous woman was there. She's famous now because she survived and she testified in front of Congress. She told the Congress to their face the Second Amendment wasn't about duck hunting. It was about us protecting ourselves from them. Well, she's very famous for that. In this context, we should learn something else, though. Why she's alive today. In her own testimony in front of Congress, she said that some other people were able to get out and create a way out. And when the guy turned for just a second, she told her mother, let's go, let's run, let's leave. And then she grew wings and she was gone. She's alive today. She's alive today. She's angry that at that time you couldn't carry in Texas and she wasn't able to help defend anybody and her only option was to run away. My point, though, is she survived. Her mother... Laying over, the laying over the body of her dead father, wasn't going anywhere. In, in, in this woman's own words, she wasn't going anywhere. They'd been married a long time, and she wasn't leaving him. It's noble. It's honorable. But her mother was not heroic either. Her mother made a decision to stay, and her mother died. In these scenarios, 
those that are not able to fight back but are able to run and do so are more likely to survive. And if we're not willing to admit that, then we're literally guaranteeing in the future some people who could survive will not. If I upset anybody by pointing things out that show that to be true, tough. I'm sorry. It has to be done. And with that, I am probably not going to talk about this issue any further. And I'd like to introduce our special guest right now. And like I said, it wasn't planned this way, for God's sakes, but we're going to look into the mind of those that do violence today. I, um, I'm going to caution you again that there's some things here that will be said that could be taken out of context or the wrong way and not to do so. I'll tell you, I think Rory is a brilliant guy, but sometimes maybe delivery, he's more likely to set himself up for that. Um, but I think he's really got this figured out. And you might have to do a little work to get through this one. And you might not want too young of a child to listen to this. You might want to listen to it first yourself before you decide. Those of you who let your kids listen, whether you want this to be something they listen to. I'm going to tell you that there's some cussing in this from his end. Stuff that I usually don't do myself even. I'm giving you a disclaimer on that. Um, but this is an honest look at violence. And with that, hey Rory, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thank you, Jack. Good morning. Hey, uh, you know, it's first appearance on the show with us here, so uh, I've told people a little bit about you. You want to give people just a little bit of your background and, uh, you know, why we got you here today to talk about this subject? Oh, I have to talk about myself in public. I hate that. <laughs> um, just a little bit. Okay, let's see. A little over 30 years in martial arts, a um, little over 17 years working in jail, and that was everything from deputy to sergeant to tactical team and tactical team leader, um, mental health specialist. Basically spent a lot of time around violent criminals. Then I got bored and went to Iraq for a year, and now I'm writing books and teaching. So a pretty diverse background, and we're here to uh, talk about preparing for interpersonal violence. And one of the first things I want to kind of have you talk about, you know, based on some of the stuff I've seen in your, your site and whatnot, uh, what is the difference between social and asocial violence? That doesn't sound like something people, you know, generally hear. It's, um, it's not. People have very, very limited ideas of violence, and there are a whole bunch of different ways to describe it and explain it. Um. Oh, great. This is cool, because sometimes I can't do this in a class. You ever hunted an animal? Yeah. You ever butchered one? Yeah. Okay. Did you have to get yourself looked up to do it? Um, not really. I think it's because I grew up in a hunting family, and it was a normal course of life. It was just something that I kind of, you know, the way that some kids go off to college and it's not a big deal for them because they always knew they were going to someday. And then I think for others, it's like a big experience. Yeah, you didn't have to convince yourself it was a bad deer. Correct, correct. You didn't have to give it a chance. No, no. And I mean, no, no more chance it. than it already had by the fact that it was a wild animal. Right, and you didn't fight it. No. Okay, and that's the difference between, really, between asocial and social. Asocial, you're getting meat. You're getting your job done. You have something to do. 
um, social is all about establishing who's dominant or getting your territories or someone broke what you think are the rules, and you have to teach them a lesson, get things back on track. And so the social tends to have a big show and a lot of communication involved, and it tends not to be designed to really hurt, to really injure people. If you start, you know, killing people within your tribe, your tribe gets weaker. So most of the things we think about with fistfights and martial arts um, are social violence. They're social adjustment. They have nothing to do with actually killing or hurting anybody. Okay, now you gave um, a pretty benign example to asocial violence than killing a deer. Right. I mean, that's not. But I guess like my question is: is there, is there, you know, let's say dangerous versions of the asocial component? Then. Sure. And well, when someone can take that asocial mindset into another human being, then they don't fight them either. They just take them out. It's just um, there's no more compassion for you than there is for the wrapper that my sandwich comes in. So that would be an example of, let's say, um, an acceptable form of that in our society would be a soldier in a war. He doesn't necessarily hate the other soldier that he's going to kill, but that's his job. That's what he does. That's how he's trained. And he executes that uh, based on training and procedure and just does it like a job, like somebody else would put a box in a truck. The best can do that, but most can't. And that's one of the things we're so wired for social um, for social conflict and social violence, that you do find, um, especially inexperienced soldiers, they have to get angry, they have to get worked up, they have to, they have to trigger their emotions in order to fight, and they wind up fighting instead of just finishing things. And this happens in self-defense, where um, there, there's something that's so obvious. I hate saying it, but it's easier to beat people up from behind. Sure, sure. That's that's incredibly obvious. How many martial arts practice getting behind people? <laughs> well, the only time yeah. I've ever worked with martial arts where somebody's behind you is it's always played up as you're being attacked from behind, not here's how to attack from behind. Right. And it's it's one of those, it's not hard to get behind most people, even most trained fighters, and just take them out. But you can teach someone that, teach someone that, teach someone that. And when the adrenaline goes up just a little bit, they'll actually subconsciously switch footwork to stay eye to eye because they're so wired to prove something, to make a communication. How much of that is our wiring versus that we've been taught about this concept of fighting fair? It's really hard to tell um, because it's not just... um, Take it from the fighting fair. Take that out of for a second. Um, fighting is a form of communication in most cases. You're trying to send a message. If you if you um, wanted the uh, same thing, that you don't start a conversation before you shoot the deer. You shoot the deer because you're doing it for food. Um, if you took that attitude to a person, you would just cut throats. There'd be no conversation. There'd be no workup. You'd never see you coming. It'd just be a done deal. Um, because most of the time we're doing it to to send him a message. You shouldn't look at my girl that way. You shouldn't talk like that. You shouldn't be here. I'm bigger and I'm bigger and better than you are. Because we're trying to send some kind of message. Um, the person has to see you, and you have that instinct to go eye to eye with them, which is possibly the stupidest way to fight. Sure. What about the person that says, though, my intention is I don't want to engage in the conflict, and the only reason I'm taking this approach is because I have to be damn sure this person's a threat before I strike them. 
Okay, explain that question a little bit more. I'm sorry? Um... I think I, I misheard a question or I lost a verb or okay. something. Okay, let me, let, me, let me restate that. Then. So the person, what about the person that's listening to what you're saying so far and says to yourself, but the main reason I'm staying eye to eye, I'm paying attention to what's going on, I'm waiting, I'm not coming up behind a guy and hitting him over the head with a baseball bat or whatever. I'm doing this because I'm, I don't want to be the aggressor here. And I am simply abstaining from contact and not striking first until I'm sure that this person is a threat to me and means to act on it. So in other words, this is a lot of people that just take that self-defense attitude of, I'm not going to hit this guy until he hits me. But that does put you at a disadvantage. Where's the balance point uh, there? No. Oh, okay, that's a whole other level. Okay. We're talking about legal, legal self-defense. Um, you have to remember that self-defense is a legal concept. It's not a tactic. Um, and when I teach it... People get into these weird things about that it's complicated. It's not complicated. Almost everything that's super bad that's going to happen is going to happen so fast that you're going to handle it instinctively. The thing is that you've been raised in this culture, so your instincts tend to be perfectly in line with law, um, where people break down, with, with a couple of exceptions. But where people break down is that they are shitty at explaining what they did and why they did it. Um, if I'm going to hit a baby with a hammer, can you shoot me? Yeah. Okay. And Quick. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm going to right fast before I can hit the baby, if I'm going to hit a baby with a hammer, am I an asshole? Absolutely. Okay. So when they ask why you shot me, and you say to save the baby, that's defense of the third party. When you say because he's an asshole, that makes things look iffy legally. Even correct. True. Correct. So you don't think your self defense is a um, skill at making a decision? It's a skill at explaining a decision. Because um, a good person, unless you're a pathological asshole um, or your ego is so involved that you need to teach the other person a lesson, uh, you'll tend to make a really good decision. But you're crappy at explaining it. Or most people are crappy at explaining it. Um, and that's the thing when you're talking about the balance between a, when you can do a preemptive strike. You can do a preemptive strike when you can explain to a jury why it was the best thing to do. And most importantly, why it prevented a worse use of force later. It's relatively hard to justify a preemptive lethal strike, but it's fairly easy. No, I don't want to go so far as to say easy to say I hit the guy and ran because if I'd waited another second, one of us would have killed one or the other. I did damage to save a life. Sure, and to prevent the escalation, and and I left the opportunity for this guy to. Be apprehended right. or be rehabilitated or something. I didn't. I didn't end the conflict in a way that ended all opportunity. And I even left a point where if I had made a mistake, yeah, the guy's hurt, but I, it, there's there's a back button here. <laughs> yeah, and that's why officers are can make takedowns and uh, and handcuffing work. You know, the, the low level force, which is really hard to use in most true self defense situations, but you can use them preemptively, fairly effectively, and. The justification becomes, you know, I took him down, wrist-locked him, and cuffed him to prevent the injuries that would happen if I'd let it escalate to a fistfight, which is, I can explain to a jury that that's where it was going. Sure. So, with this concept, then, what we're looking to do is figure out when we're the target. So, are there keys and ways that people can tell that they're being targeted and for what purpose they're being targeted? It's... 
Yes, and people know it, and they do this instinctively, and then because they're so used to the social stuff, they come up with excuses that they think that they're misinterpreting things, and they let themselves be victims. So um, the first thing, you got to know what normal is. And um, there's a normal distance we stand. It's different in different cultures, but there's a comfortable distance that we stand. Um, you and I have never met in person, so if I was saying, hey, we'd probably stand at about three feet apart. Does that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. If um, if we knew each other better, we'd be standing about a foot closer. Yep. If we knew each other really well, we're comfortable standing really close, and if you ever see two guys, they're standing almost touching chest, but looking over their shoulders, they both did yard time in prison together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're looking over each other's shoulders, not making direct eye contact with each other, covering each other's back. It's a really specific body language. Interesting. So we've got the so we've got this three foot this range that we know is comfortable. Okay, if someone wants to violate that, that's a red flag. Um, if someone is talking to you, they'll be talking to you face to face. And if you look at their feet, their feet will be. Um, I'm not not whether they're parallel or perpendicular to you. But basically, their their shoulders, hips, and feet will all be in a line facing you. Got it? Okay. Okay. Someone who wants to hurt you is going to put their their feet um, in a line towards you, so their power is towards you. If you see someone standing like that, it's either bad guy or a cop. Okay. Okay, the second piece of that is that that comfortable distance... It's only face-to-face. It's much more comfortable side-to-side. I could stand six inches off your shoulder to the side and not trigger the creepy feeling that would happen if I tried to stand two feet in front of you from the front. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bad guys know this, so they try to flank and they try to make it look like they're starting a conversation. That also puts their lines, their feet in line with you, their power line in line with you. That's Okay, so the things, if it's social, if this is going to some kind of social conflict, you'll see it coming a mile away. Um, they're all a handful of ways. Either it's a monkey dance, which is the, what you looking at? Oh, yeah, who are you? And then they stand up and they pause and they get closer and closer. But if you look at the body language of that, they're trying to look big, like cats puffing their fur out. They'll be up on their toes, bouncing, they're flexing. Their feet are squared up, and their their energy, we call it their energy is high, but basically they're up on their toes, which is like the stupidest possible way to stand if you really want to fight. But it's like a primate instinct. It's, I'm bigger, look at me. It's it's in the shoulders right. up. And, I mean, like when I studied Sistema, you know, one of the first things I thought, never raise your shoulders. It's a, it's a clear indicator of, of a response. Right, and we are all trying to impress chimpanzee females when we do that. It's a... Actual human women tend to look at that and say we're immature and stupid. The chimps would be really impressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you want to impress a chimpanzee female, you can you can yeah. puff out like that. But if you want to be common sense, then that's probably not. It. And it, it 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 gives away. And I think one of the, my things with what I've always tried to work with people on confrontation is don't give away anything before you absolutely have to about your capability, your intention, what have you, because that doesn't let your opponent feed off of you. There, there's no advantage to other people knowing what you're thinking. But anyway, okay, so you see this, and you'll see it coming, and there will be a verbals with it. They will talk. They will do this stuff. It won't be this disarming kind of verbals. It's the establishing dominance kind of verbals. There are only 
for social violence, it breaks down a couple of ways. The monkey dance we just mm-hmm. talked about, and you've seen that with almost every fist fight you've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, You see that in MMA. The two guys get in the ring and start doing that crap before they're going to have a professionally controlled and refereed fight. So if it happens there, it's going to happen everywhere. Yeah, a lot of martial arts are stylized ways to do this. Um, They're dueling systems. They're not the same as self-defense systems. Um, So monkey dance. And then it'll escalate to the point where one will either, you know, poke the finger on the chest, push the chest, flip off the ball cap, and then it, and then that could be repeated back and forth a couple of times. It'll be a you know hard overhand right, which is way more likely to hurt your hand than it's hurt the other guy. And a whole bunch of sloppy punches, and then they'll be tangled up and probably fall down and rest on the ground. If someone gets hurt doing this, it's because they fell and hit their head, or they broke their hand on the other guy's head. Um, so that's the monkey dance. The um, the educational beatdown. Um, every group has rules. The rules are always enforced. If it's a group that uses violence, then they'll enforce them with violence. For the most part, it's uh, not a big deal. Uh, you and I, if we know each other and you screw up, I can look at you and you'll be self-fixing. You'll know you screwed up. You'll, you'll, I'm, I'm sorry, it won't happen again and we're, we're done. Um, if it's a different group, I, have you ever seen NCIS? Uh, a couple times. Okay, I was raised redneck, smacking people in the back of the head when they fuck up makes total sense to me. <laughs> I, I try not to do it. It's not my, you know, it's not where I live now. Uh, but it makes perfect sense. But there are rules to it. it it's always upper status to lower status. Um, parents make kids, kids don't stick parents. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's the educational beatdown. And they can go lethal in cultures where that's allowed. Um Interesting. Can I go off on tangents? Yeah, a little bit, sure. <laughs> um, almost every group has a uh, maximum level punishment, a maximum sanction. Okay, uh, most families, a point where they say, oh, he's had enough. Even, even no, the, um, the co-conspirator says, hey, you, you, we're done. No, the, the, this is the worst thing that we do in this and this, this is the worst thing to happen. You know, in some, in most businesses, is being fired. Can they can dock you pay? They can dock you time. They can do this stuff, but their, their bad one is you're fired. Okay. Most families, it's a spanking. Follow that so far? Yeah, I got you. I got you. Okay. So, um, but there are steps to a spanking. The kid has to break a rule that they knew was a rule. Um, so it almost never happens the first time the kid does it. If the kid does get spanked, it's because they did something dangerous, like running in traffic. And there's no time to turn a conversation. Um, the kid gets to say their piece. You ask him, why did you do that? And if the kid gets all defiant, I did it because I want to. And you're a bad daddy. I do what I want. I'll be totally getting spanked. <laughs> if the kid sucks up and is like, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I just forgot. I, I, I promise I'll be good. Then usually they'll just get sent to your room. It'll be commuted, right? Sure. And the last step before the spanking is the um, the speech. You know, the, you know, I don't want to do this, but we had rules in this house and you knew that this would happen. Okay, do we skip any of those steps in the state execution? I'd say we have more steps in a state execution. But all of those steps are there, or it doesn't feel valid. Correct, correct. We don't apprehend the guy, even if we saw him do it, ten people saw him do it, we don't apprehend him, lay him down the street and shoot him. No, you have to go through the steps or it doesn't feel legitimate. 
And it's the same thing for firing. It's the same thing for spanking. It's the same thing for an execution. And the point of that is that the social violences are all scripted. Unless your ego gets sucked up to the point that you're playing a role instead of watching it, um, you can predict everything that's going to happen and you can prevent anything you can predict. So, um, avoiding the monkey dance, what you're looking at, is just, oh, nothing, dude, I was just knowing I was sleeping, didn't sleep last night, I was just looking out. Sorry about that. No monkey dance there. You aren't giving them the hook. Most educational beatdown, you know, you need to apologize to that lady. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was being rude. That won't happen again. If you want to um, escalate it, then you tell them that their rules are illegitimate. As I overheard a guy in Turkey say, is, uh, he was British. Um, well, okay, if you want, but we don't do it that way in civilized countries. And I was making friends and influencing people right and left. So, anyway, the social stuff is very predictable. There are a couple other categories that we see. And the thing with the asocial, it's all about resources. If someone's targeted you, they've chosen you for a reason. And this is getting into logic of violence. Want me to keep rambling? <laughs> I don't think you're rambling. Keep going. Okay. Um, there are only a couple of breakdowns. Again, there's the social stuff, and you can see the logic to it. If someone thinks you've broken their rules, they'll try to correct you. Um, if they're polite and civilized, they'll correct you in a polite and civilized way. But most polite cultures, they just you know, don't make eye contact and, and start snubbing you until you bring your behavior in line. And within the cultures where that's allowed, that's usually all that's required. Um, the social violence tends to break down one of two ways. It's either about resources or it's because they like it. The resource thing... Okay, here's a question for you. If no one was going to help you and there was a very real possibility that your kids were going to starve, what would you be willing to do? I think I would be willing to do pretty much anything to make sure that my kid didn't starve. Uh, as hard as that is to say. I think that I would do everything I can to stay within certain bounds of my own ethics and morality, but in the end, my kid's going to eat before your kid eats, if, if only one of them's going to eat. If, if, I can, if I can make it work, I will, but there is a point at which my family comes first. Good ethical answer. And honest. Um, we put that out to a room, and when they, people say everything, but we sit there and, you know, no, be specific. Would you steal? Would you rob? Would you murder? Would you band together with others? Um, one of the ones that doesn't come up, but it happens all over the world, would you prostitute one of your children to feed your other children? And it happens all over the world. It's more common than killing for food. So you, you get a group of people to work out this list, and you will not find anything on that list that people have not done for drugs. The addiction and drug culture drive most of the violent crime in America. And if you can't imagine getting the head of someone who's addicted, if you can imagine what you do for your kids, you've got to feel, a little bit of a feel, about what can and can't talk them down. Can I talk you out of getting food, to, getting money or food to feed your kids? No. No, but I can talk you out of using violence. Put the gun away, here's some money. It, it depends, Right. You can talk me out of using violence. That is a very it depends answer. If you you can talk me out of using violence to feed my kid, if you can show me a way to do it without violence. No, that's what I mean. I, I said, dude, just put the gun away. Here's the money. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, and most of the self-defense advice based on that, if someone shows you a knife and asks for your wallet, what do you do? Give them your wallet. Sure. That's based on this level of violence because it's about the wallet. It's about the money. See, I have a problem with that. I think you do, too, because I was just talking about this last week on the show about how where people comply in these situations, and then the guy with the gun that says, just give me and I'll go away, I know of one instance where the guy leaned across the counter, the young girl, 19 years old, working in a convenience store, pressed a 45 up under her left eye and blew the back of her head off and turned around and walked away, even though she gave him every bit of compliance. And that's where we get to the second level predator. And those are the ones that just enjoy the act of violence. And there is no win-win when one of part of his definition of winning is seeing you begging and bleeding. And are there keys that we can determine which type of person we're dealing with? Um, within those two, they use almost exactly the same tactics, almost exactly the same strategies. So what happens is when you set your line and it doesn't work is when you know it's not what he was presenting it as. And this goes back to the whole first deciding social and asocial. There's the stance, there's the position. We know what normal is. Normal is how close people normally stand, whether their feet are parallel to us or perpendicular to us. Once you consciously know normal, then you can consciously recognize abnormal. Once you do that, and one of the other reasons why I like working with um, having people practice articulating self-defense, is one of the biggest issues with most people that become victims, in my opinion, is that they know what to do, but they can't make themselves do it. They don't give themselves permission to do what they need to do. And one of my tactics is if you, in your own head, can explain it to a jury in the second, you can explain it to yourself enough to let yourself do what you need to do. So you really, the most important skill is being able to read people in reading situations. So the first division, reading between um, social and asocial, is actually fairly easy, except we're so wired to assume that everything is social. But once you get over that, those are fairly easy to read. Um, understanding the difference between a process predator, um, sorry, a process predator is the kind that enjoys the act. Um, and a resource predator, it's basically if you comply and you do not, he doesn't immediately try to get out of the area, that's wrong. It's going to go bad, very, very, very bad. Yeah, the guy that says, hand me the money out of the register and you've given him the money, the second he has the last penny, he should be 86 in the AO. And if he doesn't, things right. are not what they It increases there. the chance of getting caught. It's um, it's a math. It's a um, very mathematical with more sophisticated guys. Guys in the first robbery tend to be amateurs. Guys who do it for a while, it's a very um, subconscious but pretty detailed risk-reward analysis. Okay, the longer it drags out, the higher the risk goes. With the process predators and people enjoying acts, sometimes they have to drag it out. That's the point. It's not quick stuff. So, um, if someone is monkey dancing with you and there's no audience, is that right? No, it's absolutely not right. Unless, unless okay, so they're doing it solely to intimidate you. Right. But this is, you intimidate people for an audience. But if he's right. looking to keep you in the mindset where you think that this is a monkey dance, so all that's going to happen is, you know, you're going to push each other's on the chest and punch a couple times, and he wants to do it privately, 
and that audience magically turns into witnesses when it's predatory. If he can keep you in that social mindset, you won't fight effectively. You'll fight stupid. You'll do the big monkey dance up on your toes thing. <laughs> Whereas he, and he will just take you apart and he will enjoy it and he will giggle about it talking about it with his friends over beer later. This is what he does for fun. So is it this mindset that leads people that know something's wrong to just lock up and freeze? Yes. It, it's a lot of... Uh, freezing is a whole other issue. And it's, I mean, there, there's a lot going on. There are a whole bunch of... I want to say there are different ways to freeze, but it really breaks down to one way. Um, that there are different things behind it. Um, first thing, everybody freezes. If, you, if you're honestly surprised, which that guy will work too, the minimum freeze you're going to get if, you, if you've been in 100 fights or 100 operations um, is a switching gears freeze. Just, just going from I'm on patrol to, you know, taking fire counterattack takes a, a gear shift. It's small. The, the longer you've been doing it, the smaller it gets. Most people will never see it, but there's always at least that freeze. But when you get to people that have never experienced it before, there's a whole bunch of them. There's uh, Sometimes the, the words running through your head make you freeze. Um, I don't get this one, so I left it out of, out of uh, Facing Violence, the book. But this isn't happening, this isn't happening, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. It's really common. The two freezes I get that are close to it, um, I need a plan, which is one of the signs of an amateur. If you need a plan while you're taking damage, that no, you need to be moving if you're taking damage. Planning is for when you aren't taking damage. And if you freeze in that, trying to come up with a plan, by the time you've got a plan, you'll take too much damage to execute the plan, so you're screwed anyway. And the one that really um, irks me is the why is this happening freeze. Because even if you had an answer, it wouldn't matter. But the guy wants drug money, enjoys beating people up, or, you know, he wasn't properly toilet trained as a child, does not in any way affect what's happening in this second. So those are those are some of the mental freezes that happen. Um, one of the biggest I call it the looking glass freeze. Because when you go into violence for the first time, when something really serious happens, everything you thought you knew about the way the world works is shown to be completely false. Um, you do a, a whole bunch of stuff with shit hits the fan scenarios. And people have these assumptions. They don't, they've been raised in a society where hundreds of unseen people are taking care of them all the time. They have electricity. They have hot running water. Food gets to the grocery store. They don't really know how. Um, and people that are raised that think that that's natural. They don't realize that it's an incredibly unnatural and takes a huge amount of will and effort to keep it going. In an interpersonal violence, you find out that everything you know about how people interact, how they think, how they talk, how they treat each other, is also completely unnatural and a huge act of will to maintain. I'm saying it's, it just sounds like you're basically describing two totally different viewpoints into normalcy bias. It's, do you really think they're that different? Or are they just on different scales? I don't think they're different at all. I think that I'm just saying there's two different viewpoints into normalcy bias. Yeah, it's scales. There's the normalcy of our, our big world, and there's normalcy of how two normal people talk and act. And um, just because they're normal to us doesn't mean that they're natural or universal. I completely so agree it, with that, yes. Okay, so when it breaks down, when someone just attacks you, Someone has decided that they want your stuff. Someone, whatever it is, um, that's not the way normal people behave. And there's 
and the people go, that's not the way people behave, then their brain goes into, is this a person? And they realize that nothing that they know applies here. And what almost any biological organism does when it doesn't know what's going on is it will freeze. You don't know what will make things worse. You don't know what will work. Yeah, one of the things, that until you've been really, really adrenalized, uh, most people have no idea who they are under those circumstances. Your brain's not the same. Your body's not the same. Your perceptions aren't the same. You don't think the same. And so they have a body suddenly and a mind of their own that's totally unfamiliar to them with someone trying to do things to them that's totally unfamiliar to them. And they freeze. And sometimes, and it's one reason it stays in the gene pool, is, is way too often freezing works. Um, but you have to be able to make a conscious decision that this is not the time for freezing. I need to do something and execute it. And that is incredibly hard. Um, I'll tell you the secret with the caveat that I have absolutely no idea if just telling someone helps. Everyone I've ever debriefed, all my experiences, the same pattern. First, you have to recognize that you're frozen. And it's hard for some people because for the most part, it's not an unpleasant feeling. You don't feel scared. If you get a warm kind of floaty feeling and you hear the ocean rushing in your ears and you're having these very, very stupid, although they won't seem stupid at the time, crystal clear thoughts, you're frozen. And the people I've debriefed that were most in denial about being frozen were saying, I was thinking too clearly, I couldn't have been frozen, I wasn't even that afraid. And they stood there while the partner got hurt. Um, once you realize that you're frozen, it will be an immense act of will, but you have to tell yourself to do two things. I don't know why it's two things. It's not three, it's not one. Um, and it doesn't matter what the two things are, except they have to affect the world. Yell, hit the guy, grab something, grab a weapon, that you have to do something, you'll have to tell yourself to do a second thing. Hit him again, use the weapon, rack the round, you know, change position. And for some reason, um, after you've done two things and your hind brain realizes that, well, that hasn't got you killed, it will relax a little bit and let you start using some of your training. Is there a place where sufficient training causes almost those things to happen simultaneously? And what I mean is I've, I've had that experience before when I was taking action. Uh, where you're almost on an autopilot, where it's just what you do in the situation, and even though you're you're scared or frightened or locked in some way, the body's still moving and doing what it knows from muscle memory and just countless repeated trainings. My opinion is that um, you can condition it, you can't train it. Okay. Um, and one of the things is you can't condition complex responses. So you've done, I don't know how many times you've done an immediate action drill, but you'll do immediate action without thinking about it. Your body will start it before you consciously realize your, your weapon's jammed. Correct. Okay, that's conditioning. That's conditioning. Um, they'll tell you it takes, you know, three to 5,000 reps to learn a new skill. It only took one rep to learn how to not touch a hot stove. Sure. Sure. Okay, that, that's <laughs> the difference between, and that's the difference between training and conditioning. And if you can condition to that level, you know, you can, and it doesn't take a lot of reps. But if you condition that level, it's like you can draw, 
you can draw and engage, you can do immediate action, you can do um, what I call counter assaults, which are a flinch that hurts the other guy. Um, but you can't make complex decisions like that. You can't come up with plans. So if your training is based on seeing what's coming in, coming up with an appropriate response, working some strategy, working some tactics, that will tend to fail you under close assault unless you've been there a bunch of times. And once you've been there and you've kind of got it down, then you can do all the stuff you've trained at a really, really high level because you're using the adrenaline instead of having it used against you. But I have never seen a training that got someone to that stage in their first encounter. Okay. I'm almost thinking maybe of a different mental state then the state where the person says I just did everything I was supposed to everything seemed like it was in slow motion but a person that was watching that person said I can't believe that how quickly they reacted so that might be a completely different seen, state it is and that's what I'm talking about but I haven't seen it happen to someone the first time okay it's um that there's a, a threshold one of the, in um, Training at the Speed of Life, Ken Murray's books, he made the statement that ACE, the U.S. Air Force uh, set ACE at five kills because all the research said that no matter how good the training, no one at all remembered their training for the first three to five encounters. Wow. You get through your first three to five by going to the Air Force on luck and instinct. If you hit that threshold, that three to five threshold, and then you would have the luck, the instinct, and all the training. And it was very, very rare for an ace to ever get shot down. So once they got there, they were using the instinct combined with the training. Combined with the training, and they became really, really formidable. So, so what do people need to know about this? I mean, how how do they how do people take all of this information? this psychology and make it into something that's concrete for their, their, their lives. Um, in everything that you ever do, the most important part is awareness, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, but uninformed awareness is just not awareness. Okay. So it's not just, you know, that the, if you want to go vague with, I had a bad feeling, then, then cool. <clears throat> But if you can explain the bad feeling to others and yourself, then you've got your conscious mind and your unconscious mind working together. Um, if you recognize, you practice studying to recognize normal, you can recognize abnormal better and explain it both to yourself and the jury. The, um, everyone can benefit from getting better at reading people. It's um, everyone will say the words, but you look at their bodies, you look at their faces, and what's the message this guy is trying to send me? And once you realize, and he may not even conscious rec consciously recognize what he's really trying to say, but once you can figure out, you can manipulate him on that level instead of the level that he's trying to turn the conversation into. So this, um, the whole psychology of it is huge, and we all do it instinctively. Um, we what I suggest, what I want everyone to do, you know, get the training, get the, you know, train with me, whatever. But start moving it consciously, because subconsciously you tend to not get better at things. You get good enough. Consciously you can continuously, continuously improve. To answer the question, I just dodge it really, really well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I, I'm looking for 
maybe some concrete actions that somebody said to you, uh, I now feel exposed by this. What, what are some things I should do in my life right now and over the next couple weeks to get myself more prepared to deal with this potential reality? Because part of why we have you on, on the air here is, yes, this stuff happens every day to a small number of people. And I know if you're in the corrections industry, it seems like it's a huge number of people. But the reason people walk around with their, their head in the clouds is because it is a relatively small number compared to the whole. But we teach people in this world that, that there's a thin line that maintains that, and there could be there could come a day where this is a hell of a lot more common, and we want people to be prepared for that period of time. Well, I mean, um, it used to be normal. You know, 200, 200, we, we talk sometimes about human brain, monkey brain, and lizard brain. And 200, 250 years ago, you were in danger frequently, uh, whether food, floods, starving, disease, raiders, and people got to know that deeper part of their brain, and we tend not to. So for some suggestions for drills, um, go to public places, do it instinctively, don't try to use your brain too much, and start picking out the weak and the vulnerable. Start picking out the ones if you needed money right now or you wanted to cart off somebody, who would you pick? And then where and how would you do it? How would you get them alone? How would you get psychological dominance? Don't worry about the physical dominance yet. How would you get the psychological dominance? That's the first rule is watch people like they're prey. Because someone is watching you like you're prey every time you're in a crowd. Um, and while you're doing that, look at the ones you absolutely wouldn't fuck with and figure out why. What is it about them that tells you um, this would not end well? Um, let's see, there's another drill I don't say very often that something you just said triggered and it fell out of my brain. That's what happens when you have this many concussions. Um, whenever you get an intuition, this is another drill, whenever you get an intuition, you get a hunch, you know, you're sitting in a restaurant and that couple over there is going to argue anything. Um, you figure out where it came from. As long as it's safe, you sit there and you replay it back in your mind, what you heard, what you saw, if necessary, what you smelled, it gave you a clue, and you pick out where the clues were. For your legal articulation for self-defense, it's incredibly important, because most of those de decisions will be made very quickly and subconsciously, and having practice at explaining a subconscious decision is hugely important for that. But more important, once you start realizing that these hints are coming from information, the deep part of your brain is processing faster than the conscious part of your brain, you'll start trusting your intuition more. Once your intuition starts realizing you trust it more, it will start kicking you more stuff, and you'll actually start living in a different place in your brain. You know, I've got a great, I've got a great analogy for that, for people to understand it. Okay. My father-in-law has a hard time hearing, a very, very hard time hearing. We finally convinced him to get hearing aids, these new, highly advanced hearing aids. When they put them in his ear the first time, it was amazing how much he could hear, but they did not give him full correction of what was possible because they said he'd lived this way for so long that it would overstimulate and be too much to handle. So over a, a period of several weeks, the gain on these hearing aids slowly increased so that the mind could process the information it had lost touch with. 
That's exactly what you just described. You're asking your 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 subconscious and your consciousness co- collectively to give you more information. And the more you're able to process, the more it will be willing to give you. But it can't go from zero to sixty in in, in a half a second. It has to be conditioned in. It has to be developed. Excellent. Yes. Yes. And that. Okay. And you just remind me of the other drill. And this is. I think I can only uh, suggest this with your audience. I can't do it with most people. But go get cold and hungry for a while. Um. Go off and don't eat for long enough that your senses start just shooting up and you start smelling hamburgers two miles away. Um, start getting into that part of your brain that starts triggering when you're hungry. And that's really close to the part of your brain that gets triggered when you're scared. It's um, get to know yourself. Get to know that part of your brain. And third drill, do something physical that involves shoving around sweaty, nasty people. <laughs> I, I like judo for that. Okay. Um, the judo, wrestling, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, don't fall in love with it, especially the grappling. It's really easy to fall in love with. Um, and you don't grapple to grapple. You always grapple for something else, to handcuff, to escape, or to disable. Um, it should never be dragged out. It shouldn't turn into a chess match. Which is one of my problems with the sport when it becomes... A, a, a viewpoint of self-defense and you've got these people rolling around on the ground together and I, I respect the physical development, I respect the skill, I respect the sport of it but in trainings we've done we've had people you know, put them into scenarios and let them spar like that and roll around on the ground and I've walked up to them and, and, and tapped them on the forehead with a training knife yeah. and, and the reality was they never even thought that well while you're doing this right his buddy uh, over here is going to put a knife in your kidneys. And that's what makes it a perfect example of that social, because those are what's being demonstrated there are exactly what would impress a chimpanzee female. <laughs> strength, and, strength and endurance and flexibility and, and even some tactical sense. Um, and it's not, it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with being strong and flexible. And I will say that Everyone needs a little bit of grappling if they want to go physical because it's, they're the premier teachers of how to move a body. And moving a body is one of the critical skills. But it's really easy to fall in love with. And um, once you fall in love with it, you start doing it for itself instead of for your goal. But um, my point is you want to get used to going hands-on with people that are kind of icky. Okay. The, the 200 pound sweaty hairy guy, you want to get to the point where you don't even flinch when it's time to, to bury your head in his armpit and throw it. Once you get past that flinch, it's the same thing. You want to practice something where you take impact. I don't think boxing is not good for you. Micro concussions are horrible. But I think everyone should box until they aren't afraid of getting hit anymore. Then they can walk away from it. But you need, you need to get that exposure to impact, not be afraid of it. And just and a lot of a lot of basic training is is pick the things that scare you, and go do them until they don't scare you anymore. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. That's that's uh, as I mentioned before. I, I've done quite a bit of work in training with the Russian Sistema, and getting hit is a big part of it, and learning to absorb blows. But it's not theatrical. Like, look at me, I can get hit fifteen times and stand here. 
it's taking away the fear because the the concept is in a fight you're going to get hit. So you're going to have to be able to deal with it. The best training I think I ever had for real fights wasn't martial arts. It was high school football. <laughs> yeah. Because you learned how to take a hit and get back up and stick to the plan. Yeah. And that's, and that's huge, the ability to take a hit and stick to the plan. Um, and, you're, yeah, your first couple of hits, yeah, change your world. But after that, it becomes part, that's just the way the world is, and you know it. And the goddamn godly number of people that don't understand that the, excuse me, that the natural environment of a fight is to be pushed and pulled and slammed and hit, and that's just the way it is. It's ridiculous. Now, you have something oh, you call... One more yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, no, there's a, one more thing. Um, when you're looking at your martial arts... And, and this is huge. This is something that um, I worked out when I was uh, doing a collaboration with Lawrence Kane. Um, High-end self-defense, you know, striking on up, you can only do, you can only justify because you're losing. Okay, and, and this goes from everything from punching and kicking up to shooting. In order to justify it, you have to be in a position where you're losing which means you have to train everything you do from ex- positions of extreme disadvantage. Because if, it, if it's even or better, like it is when you when you bow in and step forward, um, it's not justified, which means you have to be able to work with, with your structure compromised at a range you didn't choose, with the person behind you to the flank. Everything a bad guy's going to set up has to become your natural environment for fighting. That's critical. Absolutely, absolutely. Some of the stuff we would do is we'd have a we'd have a person, you know, demonstrate their ability to deliver a blow, and then say, "Great!" But now you're standing, you're prepared, you were asked, and we put them into a compromised position and say, "Now, how would you deal with this?" For instance, squatted to the ground, their back against the wall with their their you know right shoulder pushed against the wall. You've got to do something now. What would you do? And that's another component that I have a problem with a lot of organized structured trainings is they always assume um, certain things are going to be in place or available or possible versus the reality of violence, which is you don't get to choose. Yes. That's a, have you read the books? <laughs> no, I'm actually looking right now. I was going to start asking you to, to, to tell us a little yeah. bit about your books. I, I, I didn't realize you had written so many books, Rory. Uh, you kind of were referred by a listener, I, I, and uh, you've got a ton of stuff. I, I didn't actually realize. Um, if you can't read books, yeah, there's a ton. But the, um, the uh, okay, so this is the pitching the books part of the show? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I hate the part. Yeah, but I mean, I think people would, could gain a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at, I thought, you know, maybe you had, I knew you had the, the meditations on violence, but I'm looking at a whole uh, catalog of books here on your site. And uh, in fact, there's so many initially, I thought that um, maybe they were, you know, books you recommended. And then I started looking at the author name on all of them. So, yeah, tell us about some of the writing you've done and what you have available. Um, so meditations on violence was the first one. And that was... Uh, um, Really ugly year. Um, first body recovery was search and rescue, delivering a crack baby, um, uh, blue hole in a guy. 
And on top of that, I was starting to realize how disconnected I was getting from the martial arts around me, that they didn't even have a language for what I was trying to say. And I'm getting some weird feedback on this right now. Um, so I started writing down, and it wasn't originally going to be published. It was just a, a booklet of the stuff I wanted my jiu-jitsu students to know when they were ready. And one of my friends, Chris Wilder, who I sent it to, sent it on to his publisher, and that's what started the whole ball rolling. So that was meditation. It's um, all the stuff that the martial arts I knew didn't seem to understand, the stuff that was obvious to me that wasn't obvious to them. Um, facing violence the second was about what to do about it. And that goes into self-defense law and internal ethics and how bad guys set up, which if you want more on social and social violence and the different types of social and social violence, that's the best breakdown I've done yet. Um, avoiding it, dealing with, a, with ambush assaults, breaking the freeze, um, how fights differ from what most people expect, and a little bit on how to deal with the aftermath because it's never over. Um, then I got annoyed. <laughs> um, it, it, I, I spent most of my time with the sheriff's office. I love these guys. They are incredibly efficient. They're very good. They're incredibly honorable. And it seemed like sometimes no matter what they did, um, someone who had absolutely no problem or no clue about what happened would be trying to judge it. And um, when I worked for the sheriff's office, I was working on behalf of the citizens. They have an absolute right to know exactly what I did, exactly why. Um, I'm doing. I'm using force on their behalf when I use force. But if someone wants to complain about it, I didn't want to complain because it made them feel icky, which is where most use of force complaints come from. I didn't like the way it looked. If you haven't been exposed to a lot of force, all force... Every force event looks horrendous. Um, so I wanted to write a book because I didn't think there was one out there that did a good job of explaining the rules. So Force Decisions, a Citizen's Guide, the first half is um, a straight-up academy use of force class. And then there's some other stuff in there about how experience changes perspective and some other things, but it's a guide to how cops think about force. Okay, and I think that's an important one because I think that, I don't know, I've seen excessive force, and I think that there's a level that we, we know that's what we're looking at when we see it. I saw a Dallas police officer grab a 110-pound woman by the neck, pick her up, and slam her head into a concrete structure. That was clearly an excessive use of force. But I've also seen takedowns that you're absolutely correct that a person might say that that was excessive, but they have no idea what the threat to the officer might be. Well, and, and one of the things I, I run into a lot is that um, unless you've been exposed to it, a lot of people don't distinguish between pain and injury. Mm. And there are some things like, like pepper spray and taser which cause pain, but very, very rarely cause any significant injury. Um, finger locking someone which looks less horrible is far more likely to cause a serious injury or permanent injury than either of those tools. But because they're tools, and especially the taser, the pain is so legendary, um, people don't recognize it's actually a lower level of force than tackling somebody. Sure, sure. So it's, um, yeah, it, so it's basically, you know, how we have to think about it in some of the case law. There was one, um, one local one. 
a 260-pound guy walking in just pants in December on a windy bridge swinging a club. And the officer tried to talk to him, no response whatsoever. Um, Joe got out of the car with a taser, and the guy came at him swinging the club, so he tasered him. Okay. By the time it was done, the guy had done three taser shots and I think uh, four to six baton strikes before he got cuffs on the guy. 260-pound guy with a club. The officer would have been fully justified in shooting him. I would say um, so. I, I, so yeah. Right. He, he risked his life to handle it at a lower level of force. And the local community was up in arms because the 260-pound guy with the club was a 15-year-old child. <laughs> um, oh, that sounds familiar to something else. I'm just going to leave alone right now. Yeah, but, but you get the idea. It's like you need to, yeah. you know, if you think that there's something wrong, you need to be able to explain what is wrong. And it's, that was all I wanted was to have citizens have a book with the rules. So they could sit there, and if they did have an issue with it, they could sit there and, and have a, a, a conscious issue with it instead of a gut-level issue with it. Now, you've got another book here that I'm interested in hearing about, uh, Horrible Stories I Told My Children. Oh, I did that under a pseudonym, yeah. Yeah, you did. It's, it's uh, R.A. Ellis. <laughs> I, I worked with criminals for so long, I didn't feel comfortable putting my uh, my kids' names out there. Sure. So I changed everybody else's names, but I figured I better change mine, too. So, um, no, I was, I was a terrible father. Oh, my God. My, my kids were convinced that they came from a kid pound. And if they, they weren't good, we could always take them back. <laughs> and it's like, you know, ah, so it's, will you take us back? No, you're good kid. It's not like your older brother, Mikey. We don't have an older brother, Mikey. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, oh, I, I convinced their mother, Ben, that my mother-in-law, their grandmother, was a cannibal. Um, I told my daughter we, we stole her from a circus. Okay, really, well, really, 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 I, I really was looking for a point, right? So what was the point of that book? I, I thought it was going to be like, you know, horrible stories that were like because you were honest with them or something. So what was the No, what? no, I was just, I know I was, oh, no, I was a terrible dad. It was a, a one time, it, there were a couple times there was a point, and one time my son, you know, he was just really mad at my wife. He was really mad at his mom. And I just mad at her. I hate her. And it's like, well, I knew this was coming. It looks like it's time to get ourselves a new mom. And he, he's, he's shocked, and it's like, you know, so you want to help me write the ad? So I start composing this ad, you know, wanted new mom. And, you know, the whole point is to get my kids to fight me on it. Sure. They did, but it, but my daughter, I'm going to tell. It's like, oh, she'll look it out anyway Thursday. What's Thursday? Recycling day. You don't want me to just throw it away. That wouldn't be ecologically sound. I'm going to put out with recycling. <laughs> so, yes, I was not a good dad. Truly not a good dad. So, but what was the point of the book? Just to confess that, or just was it a humor book with a twisted no, sense? I mean, what would a person who bought that book get out of it? Because I, I know what you'd get out of these other books. I, I was interested in this, and now I don't know if I would want a copy. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you've got kids, you want a copy. Um, but it's those are just the stories you know, now. Now they're adults. Those are the stories my kids laugh their asses off about. Okay. Yeah. All right, so it's it's almost a Tim Taylor thing there. Uh, <laughs> okay, um, so where can people find out more about you, your books, your training, your your all your stuff? Um, 
The website is curontraining.com, and that's Curon like the centaur, C-H-I-R-O-N, training, all one word. And I uh, keep a blog at curontraining.blogspot.com, and that's where I do my thinking out loud. So, and that was secret for a long time. There's no secret now. Okay. Well, we'll be uh, we'll make sure that there's uh, links to both of your sites in the show notes today, so that people can get on over there, check out your books, and and learn more about you, and read your writing, and gain from uh, a lifetime of experience that is uh, something very few people really get a deep look into. And I appreciate you being here with us today, Rory. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, and folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Rory Miller, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you